From the great heaven she set her mind on the great below. From the great heaven the goddess set her mind on the great below. From the great heaven Inanna set her mind on the great below. My mistress abandoned heaven, abandoned earth, and descended to the underworld. Inanna abandoned heaven, abandoned earth, and descended to the underworld. Welcome to In Case You Mythed It, the show about the myths and legends of the world that you probably didn't hear about in school. As always, I'm your host, Carl Gage. Today we begin our October series on Catabasis stories, and for more on what that means, listen to the introduction episode. What you just heard at the beginning of the show was the opening lines of today's myth, The Descent of Inanna, translated into English from the original Sumerian. While I would love to jump right into it, Sumerian literature is truly something that you probably didn't hear about in school, so some background is required. Existing in the southern end of what is today the nation of Iraq, between the great rivers Tigris and Euphrates, Sumer can, with no exaggeration, be called the earliest civilization, or at least the earliest one to develop writing, and thus to tell us of their culture in their own words. The people who spoke the Sumerian language arrived in the area around five and a half thousand years ago, displacing and combining with the culture that had first settled there. Much of Sumerian history, while fascinating, is not really pertinent to the story being told today, so I will give you the basic rundown. The people of the region were among the first to develop the techniques of farming. Among their agricultural products, they grew grains, mostly wheat and barley, as well as lentils, beans, cucumbers, garlic, leeks, grapes, melons, and figs. They built large cities, the first urban centers of the world, where as many as 80,000 people lived. Competition among the dozen or so city-states that comprised Sumer led to the development of armies and weapons, and the rise of kings as leaders. They developed many technologies, including wheeled vehicles and potter's wheels, but most importantly, writing. The writing of Sumer was called cuneiform, and it was made by pressing symbols into soft clay using a reed stylus. This method of writing is actually why we still have as much of it as we do. If a fire were to break out in a storehouse of soft clay tablets, the clay was baked into something resembling flat stones with writing scratched into them, a much more durable method of storing information than the papyrus used in most ancient cultures. And like all people, the Sumerians had religious practices. Their vast pantheon had many of the hallmarks of what we associate with such groups of deities, complex and fraught family relationships, attitudes based upon the perceived attitude of the natural phenomenon they ruled, and a way to make a chaotic cosmos seem at least somewhat organized. While I would love to do a deep dive on the Sumerian pantheon and the wider Mesopotamian and Babylonian pantheons that it largely inspired, that is once again outside the scope of this story. I will instead describe the main gods who appear here. The most important deity in the descent of Inanna is, unsurprisingly, Inanna. Inanna was a goddess of many things, beauty, love, sex, and fertility, but also war, political power, sovereignty, and the authority of kings. Depicted as a profoundly beautiful young woman, Inanna was commonly given the title of Queen of Heaven and in other stories accomplished such feats as stealing the sacred maze, tablets that contained the power of civilization, positive and negative, from another god, thus gaining great power for herself, destroying a mountain to dust because it refused to proclaim her as the most beautiful and powerful being, 
and sending the great bull of heaven to battle the hero king Gilgamesh. She is best characterized as ambitious, capricious, clever, jealous, and vengeful. She was also known to have a nigh-insatiable sexual appetite, and some of her exploits in that regard are also written about. Dumuzid, or Tammuz, was a god of shepherds, grain, milk, and the growth of plants. He is the god most often associated with Inanna as her husband. Do not be mistaken, though, Inanna took many lovers. Ereshkigal is depicted in this story as the older sister of Inanna, though most other texts do not include this relation. Ereshkigal was the queen of the underworld, which the Sumerians called Kur, which she ruled from her great palace, Ganzir. Kur was believed to be the final resting place of the dead, where the spirits lived out a shadowy version of life in the gloom, and where the only food or drink was dust. There was no punishment or reward for a mortal's behavior on earth, and the quality of their afterlife depended entirely upon the condition of their burial. Her husband was called Nergal, a god of death, forest fires, plague, fever, and war. Kur was also said to be the home of all the numerous demons in Sumerian myth, who often came forth to be bring disaster and illness upon humans, and who could be driven away with spells performed by priests and magicians. Like all underworld deities, Ereshkigal was devoid of pity, and was utterly devoted to her duty of ensuring that the dead stayed where they belonged. With that out of the way, let's begin at the beginning. Inanna, Queen of Heaven, decided to go to the underworld, Kur. Why precisely she decided to do this is unclear, According to some, it was to visit her sister Ereshkigal. According to others, it was to participate in a funeral. Still others believe that the ever-ambitious goddess wanted to overthrow her sister and rule Kur as well as heaven. Regardless, her decision made, Inanna clothed herself in the sacred garments which contained her divine power. A crown, a necklace of lapis lazuli beads, a second necklace of larger lapis chunks shaped like eggs, which fell to her chest a pala dress which noble women wore, a fine breastplate, and a golden ring on her arm. Lastly, she carried in her hand a lapis measuring rod and line, a symbol of royal authority. The seven objects each contained one-seventh of her power. She walked into the east, toward the Zagros Mountains, where the entrance to the underworld was found. She walked with her attendant, a minor goddess named Ninchubur, to whom she gave directions. Inanna said that she was going to the underworld, and gave instructions for what to do if she did not return. Ninshubur was to sing a lament for her by the ruins, to beat the drum for her in the meeting places, to circle the houses of the gods, the temples. She was to tear at her eyes, at her mouth, at her thighs, to dress in a single rough garment like a beggar, and go to the gods. First, she was to go to the temple of Inanna's grandfather, Enlil, in the city of Nippur, there she was to pray for aid on Inanna's behalf, for Enlil to not allow his daughter to be killed in the underworld, but to bring her back to earth. If Enlil did not listen, Inshubur was to go to the temple of Nanna in Ur, and ask the same. If Nanna did not listen, she should go to Enki's temple in the city of Eridu. Enki was the wisest of the gods, and knew the secrets of the food and water of life. He would certainly not let Inanna die. Inanna sent Ninshubur off as they reached the gate. Striding up, Inanna pounded on the gate of Kur, 
and called out for Neti, the gatekeeper of the underworld, and demanded entrance. Neti asked who she was and why she would tread the road on which no traveler returns. Inanna told him that she had come to see her sister, so that they could observe funeral rites for Gugalana, the Bull of Heaven, though it is possible this was a lie. Neti went back to his queen, Ereshkigal, and told her of the coming of Inanna. When Ereshkigal heard of Inanna coming in all her power, she thought for a moment. Then she told Neti to bolt each of the seven gates of the underworld. She told him to open each gate just enough for Inanna to slip through, then to take one of her garments that held her power, so that she would enter the land of Kur naked and weak. Neti followed the directions of his queen and bolted all seven gates. He then opened the first gate just slightly and bade Inanna enter. Inanna stepped through the gate, and Neti snatched the crown from her head. When she protested, Neti told her that the ways of the underworld were perfect and eternal, and that she should not question them. As she passed the second gate, the necklace of small lapis beads was removed. Again she protested, and again Neti told her not to question the ways of the eternal land of Kur. At the third gate she lost the double strand of larger lapis beads, at the fourth the breastplate, at the fifth the golden ring, and the sixth the measuring rod. Each time she asked the meaning of the theft, and each time was rebuffed. At the seventh gate, her dress was removed, leaving her naked. She asked for the final time why this was happening, and was told for the final time that the ways of Kur were perfect and eternal, and were not to be questioned. Inanna, naked, weakened, and bowing low in the gloom of the underworld, entered the throne room of Ereshkigal, ruler of that dismal place. Ereshkigal stood up from her throne, and Inanna moved toward her, and then the Anunnaki, the mysterious group of gods that some say decree fate, surrounded Inanna and passed judgment upon her, and they judged against her. Then Ereshkigal set upon her sister the gaze of the Eye of Death. She spoke the word of wrath against her, and she uttered the cry of guilt. Then Ereshkigal struck Inanna, and Inanna died. Her youthful living body was turned to a bloated, rotting corpse, and was hung from a hook affixed to the wall, a trophy for the realm of the dead. On earth, the crops withered and died, the grasses in the plains turned brown and brittle. All of the animals, wild and cattle alike, became barren, and humans also lost all fertility. After three days and three nights without Inanna, Ninshubur began to do as she had been instructed. She set up a lament by the ruins. She pounded the drum in the meeting places. She circled the houses of the gods in mourning. Ninshubur tore at her eyes, at her mouth, at her thighs. She dressed in the single rough garment of a beggar. Ninshubur went to the city of Nippur, to the temple of Inanna's grandfather, the god of the wind and storms, the king of the gods. She begged in his temple to rescue Inanna from the land of the dead, to not let her die there. But Enlil answered her angrily. He said that Inanna had craved power in the great above, and had also craved power in the great below, blinded by ambition. But she who seeks the power of the underworld does not return. She who goes to the dark city must stay there. Enlil refused to help. Ninshubur then went to the great city of Ur, 
to the temple of Nana, the moon god, Inanna's father. She begged him as well to save his daughter. But Nana was just as angry as Enlil. Inanna had pushed too far, and so she must stay in the underworld, for none may leave there. Nana refused to help. Lastly, Ninshubur traveled to the city of Eridu, and entered the temple of Enki, god of wisdom, of craftsmanship, and of water. She begged him to save Inanna, who was dead in the underworld. Enki was troubled. What had she done, he asked. What had happened to Inanna, holy priestess of heaven, queen of all lands? She could not be allowed to die like that. Enki would help. Enki scraped some dirt out from under one of his fingernails. From the dirt, he made a kurgara, a person neither male nor female. From dirt under the fingernail of his other hand, he made a galatur, another person neither male nor female. To the kurgara, he gave the food of life, and to the galatur, he gave the water of life. He then gave them instructions for the return to, of Inanna. They were to enter the underworld like flies through a door. There they would find Ereshkigal, writhing and screaming in great pain like a woman giving birth. He instructed them to echo her screams, to scream beside her, to make it so that she did not feel she was suffering alone. This would please the Queen of the Dead, and she would offer them a gift. They would ask for the corpse on the wall. When it was given to them, they would sprinkle the food and water of life upon it, and Inanna would be returned. Enki sent them on their way. The Kurgara and Galatur went east, into the Zagros Mountains. They came to the outer gate of the underworld, and passed through it like flies. They passed just as easily through the other six gates. At last they came to Kur itself, where they found Ereshkigal. As Enki had predicted, she was writhing and screaming in pain like a woman about to give birth. The Kurgara and Galatur sat and howled and moaned with her, so that she did not feel she was suffering alone. When the pain subsided, Ereshkigal looked at them, and asked who they were. She said if they were gods, she would bless them. If they were mortals, she would give them a great gift. She offered to them the water gift, the fullest of rivers. They did not accept the water gift. She offered to them the grain gift, fields ready to harvest. They did not accept the grain gift. She asked them what they would have as a gift. They asked her only for the bloated, rotting corpse that hung from the meat hook affixed to the wall. Ereshkigal told them that it belonged to Inanna. They said that whether it belonged to a king or a queen, it was what they wanted. Ereshkigal brought the corpse down and gave it to them. The Kurgara and Galatur sprinkled the corpse with the water and food of life. The magic substances worked, and the body returned to the beautiful, youthful form of Inanna. She leapt up, returned to life, and made to run away. As Inanna was about to escape from Kur, she was seized by the mysterious Anunnaki. They decreed that none may leave the netherworld unmarked, be they living or dead. If she was to leave, then one would need to take her place there. They released her, and with her they sent Gala demons. The Gala that clung to Inanna did not know food. They did not know drink. They did not eat offerings, nor did they drink libations. They accepted no gifts to placate them. They did not engage in lovemaking. They did not have children. They stole the wife from the arms of the husband, snatched the child from the parent's knee. 
they stole young brides from the house of their marriage. It was those demons that clung to Inanna. The demon that went in front of Inanna held a scepter, yet he was not a minister. The one that walked behind her was not a warrior, yet he carried a mace. When they reached the palace of Inanna, Ninshubur came out wearing the dirty, soiled garment of a beggar and threw herself into the dust at Inanna's feet. The demon said that Inanna may go, for they will take this one. Inanna responded that she would not let them take Ninshubur, who was her aide, her loyal advisor, her comrade in war, who had done as she had asked and beseeched the gods for aid. The demons relented and said they would keep looking. They went to the city of Ummah, where they came across Shara, one of Inanna's sons. He was dressed in a soiled garment like a beggar and threw himself into the dust at her feet. The demons wanted to take him, but Inanna once more stopped them. Shara was her son, who sang sweet hymns to her. He trimmed her nails and brushed her hair for her. They could not have Shara. The demons relented. When they came to Batibira, they saw Lulal, another of Inanna's sons. Like his brother, he wore the soiled cloth of a beggar and threw himself into the dust at her feet. The demons went to take him, but Inanna intervened once more. Lulal was her son. He was a great leader of men. He was her right and her left arm. They could not have Lulal. The demons relented. They went to the city of Uruk, to the great apple tree that sat at its center. Here they found Dumuzid, the husband of Inanna. Dumuzid was wearing his fine, sacred garments. He played a reed flute and sat on his throne. He drank fine wine and cream. He did not move when he saw them, but stayed on his throne. He was not mourning her. Inanna affixed upon Dumuzid the eye of death. She spoke against him the word of wrath. She uttered the cry of guilt. She ordered the demons to take him away. The demons who did not know food, did not know drink, who did not eat offerings nor drink libations, who accepted no gifts to placate them, descended upon Dumuzid. They clawed at him, beat him, hacked at him with axes. They took him away to the underworld to serve in Inanna's place. That, ladies and gentlemen, was the story of the descent of Inanna. I hope you enjoyed this little foray into the oldest of mythologies, that of Sumer. I also hope you will enjoy all of the Katabasis stories we cover this month. I know I promised to finish the story of Medea last time, but October crept up on me, as it tends to do, so that will have to wait. Tune in next week for another harrowing tale of living people seeing things that the living ought not see. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>